listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners, welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining us today. We have a special guest that I'm really excited to have because he is different than our typical active investor guest. The reason that I was introduced to him and asked him to come join us is to give a different perspective. He is primarily a passive investor. So love to hear about the other side of the coin, what you look for in active investors, how you decide what investors to work with, and, and what passive investing has done for your life. So Jeremy Roll with Roll Investments. Welcome to the group. Great. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So, Jeremy, can you go ahead and tell us your story, how you got started in real estate, what sparked your interest, and how it evolved over the years? Sure. Yeah. And by the way, I'm apologizing for my uh, COVID-19 hair. I was afraid to try my (laughs) gel. I really should have tried the gel yesterday and tested it, but my hair is just insane. It's not normally like this. Anyway. Ditto. Yeah. Well, yours actually looks like it's in pretty good shape though. So anyway, so I actually had been investing in passive cash flow opportunities, mostly in syndications since 2002. I started back then after the dot-com crash. And the reason why I got into it is because I was sick and tired of the lack of predictability of the stock market. So really, I just looked for a different way to invest that had more predictability associated with it because I was kind of a kind of a low-risk guy and I would just kind of a 10, 20, 30 year horizon. I just wasn't comfortable with all the volatility in the stock market after the dot-com crash. Like, where is my portfolio going to be in 10, 20, 30 years from now? I don't like this strategy. Like, I don't know where it's going to be. So I went to look at different ways to invest and came across the general concept of kind of lower risk, more stabilized cash flow, and then decided that the passive side, because I was really busy in the corporate world at the time, I was actually working at Disney headquarters here in Los Angeles. I was just too busy to do something active. So I started a passive path. And long story short, I ended up rotating all my money from stocks and bonds into passive cash flow between 02 and 07. I had a last draw moment with another manager or a manager of mine when I was working at Toyota headquarters here in LA in mid-2007. And I decided to leave the corporate world because I had enough cash flow built up to live off of. It wasn't my plan. I didn't have this great master plan to get out of the corporate. I actually liked having the paycheck and the cash flow, just more predictability on the retirement side. So I've been a full-time passive cash flow investor since uh, mid-2007, which right now it's actually June. So I, I left the corporate world in June. So it's been about 13 years now, but full time for what is that 18 years. So I've been investing in real estate and cash flow for about 18 years now. Awesome. So when you got started, how did you how did you pick your first cash flow? Walk us through your first deal. How did that evolve? Yeah, so I was really lucky. So a couple of things. First of all, I was living in, a, uh, in US since 98. I came down here to do an MBA. And then I graduated in 2000 and got a job in the US ever since. But I'm from Canada, I'm from Montreal. And that's where I grew up until I left in 98. So I have lifelong friends in my family who had been already actively involved in real estate and syndicating for probably 10 to 20 years at that point. And I kind of knew I could trust them and I knew I'd be able to learn a lot from them, you know, in an unusual, like unusually good scenario compared to just some random person I would invest with. So I decided to start investing with them. So my first investments were all in Canada and they were involved in asset classes that that particular syndicator was focused on, which was office, retail, and industrial. So I went into those deals starting in 2002. The funny thing is, I'd have to ask them because at this point, I'm, in, I'm hyper-diversified. I'm like in over 60 deals right now, and I've, you know, I've been in over 30 sales in the last three years. So I can't even remember which the first deal was. I actually should ask them. But it was either an office or retail deal probably. You wouldn't be investing in office or retail today, would you? No. In fact, the last office deal... I invested in was probably about 2015 and the last retail deal I did I think was in 2000 and 
probably around then too. Yeah, that's when I kind of put the drew the line of because I, I invest for predictability and I started to get concerned about retail predictability with the internet at that point. I started to get concerned about office predictability at that point as well, just not knowing where the office demand would be and also with more and more internet and more telecommuting. You know, now it's obviously very heightened with COVID, but back then I was still I have to think like five, ten years out when I invest the way that I invest. So So where'd you go from there? How did tell us how did the first deal work out? Yeah. So where I went from there was I essentially started to learn about different asset classes. I started to go to a lot of networking events back in 02 in the US. I, I was in LA, so I was lucky because with this type of population here, there was a lot of choices as far as events that I could go to. And so I, I probably, now I didn't have any kids and I wasn't married, so I had time. So after work, I probably went to an average of about two to three events a week. And I just kind of focused on trying to learn as much as possible to network as much as possible. And back then it was a very different time, right? There were no podcasts. The internet was still very new. So if I was going to try to network and find opportunities, they had to be in person. It was really the primary, by far the primary way of doing it. So it made it much more challenging. Today as an accredited investor, you can go log on to crowdfunding websites in your pajamas and download deals. You can listen to a ton of podcasts like this that have a ton of value. And you can go on to online like Bear Pockets and just do a ton of networking all over the U.S. Back then, it was not like that. It was much harder to start. So I had to put a lot of just FaceTime in across a lot of different networking events. And so I did a lot of that all the way through probably until at least 2012. And now it wasn't at that pace. That pace probably stopped for me at about 2009, 10, 11. But that was a really important step that I took. And then eventually I learned about more asset classes, started to dabble in more asset classes. And I also did some non-real estate stuff that wasn't necessarily syndications, but just more cash flow oriented. And so it started to become a bit of a mix and I was just trying to build up my equity over time. So what were the other cash flow th- types of things that you did outside of real estate? Sure. So between 02 and 04, a friend of mine approached me, and this is just one example, but I really like this example because it was just crazy cash flow. In 04, a friend of mine approaches me and he'd been running a web hosting company for a few years. And back then, you know, without the Amazon and Google Clouds, companies had to create their own cloud with their own servers in the location. And so companies would approach someone like him and he'd have his own private dedicated servers that would be secure. And he would basically have people just like someone using Amazon S3 right now, they'd be on those servers instead. And so he was really ramping up that business. I knew him for a long time, really nice guy. And he approached me one day and said, you know, I'm leasing Dell servers at 28% interest from this leasing company because I'm a small company. He said, like, here's the contract. If you want to do it instead, you can just do it. I was like, that's interesting. So obviously not low risk. Servers depreciate very quickly, but it was a 28% interest rate. It was a three-year term. and It was a 5% buyout. So effectively, that's about a 50% cash on cash return each year. So literally, I think, I can't remember the exact number, 60 to 80 lease agreements later, some of which were multiple servers. You know, from 2004 to 2012, I had an amazing run at earning 50% cash on cash and reinvesting it and compounding it. And it was just crazy. So that helped me to build a lot of equity because back in 02, I didn't have that much equity to invest. I had some, but it was, you know, that's how I was building a lot of equity while also then investing in a more stabilized stuff like real estate. Um, and so it was kind of a medium risk and low risk combination, so to speak. That's how I managed through those years. And then eventually between 07 and 2013, I started to transition to less of that high cash on cash stuff and much more into syndications of different types, apartments and other things. And this is like after the downturn. And basically 
now at this point, I still have, like I have some ATM machines that I started in 08 that do about 35% average cash on cash each year that I've done since 08. And I have some other things too like that. So I like to do a mix of a lot of stuff. I'm highly diversified. But my primary focus and my favor is just to stabilize, highly diversified, experienced operator, apartment or mobile home park or self-storage or whatever syndication that will just, you know, I, I want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow and not much has changed because I live off the cash flow. So that predictability is the most important piece for me. Uh, by the way, I should also note that I started investing in startups probably in about 2007 or eight. The first batch I did, most of them did not go well. A couple of them did okay. I then retuned how I was investing in them back in about 2012 or 13. And now they've been going very, very well, even through COVID. So I've been very lucky. So I had like a handful, like maybe eight or nine startups at this point as well. Oh, awesome. So I, I think we're for this show, I think we're more interested to hear how you pick your apartment syndications that you invest in. Yep. I'm also interested in how you pick your, your mobile home park and, and your self storage facilities. What types of returns are you getting from those? And, and you know, what do those deals typically look like? Sure. I think the best way to describe the returns is maybe what I was able to get over the past cycle, because right now I'm on hold waiting for the market to adjust. You know, we're recording this in June of 2020. There's a lot going on right now. We're in the middle of recession. We're in the middle of COVID just starting lockdowns a couple months ago. So, there's a so lot you're, not, you're not investing right now then? No, I mean, I would do what I call a no-brainer. So, and just to rewind, I have been on the sidelines in every asset class as of the end of 2016 with the exception of no-brainers. So 2017, 18, 19, I was pushing my sponsors to sell. I was in over 30 sales then those three years because prices were just too high for my comfort level. I did make investments though. In 2017, I invested in a mobile home park, a two-park portfolio. I made an RV park investment in uh, December. I'm just constantly, I'm just involved in some, I made a senior living investment in January. Like I, I actually added to a, a mobile home park position I had in a fund. It was probably like in November. I'm just constantly doing things because I have so many deals. But in general, I've been on the sidelines since the end of 2016, unless something was really unique. I just you have to do it as a no-brainer. I can go over some no-brainer apartment examples if you want that I did. Even. I would love some no-brainer apartment examples. Yeah, so I'm going to give you a couple. Let's see. There was a deal in 2000 and I think it was 15. So just to backtrack, I'm really, really low risk. So between 09 and 13, I invested in a bunch of apartments, just like a lot of other people did. But by the time 13 came around, I got nervous about the valuations, okay? Which I know sounds crazy to some people listening to this <laughs> and maybe relatively new, but... You have to understand that the hottest asset class between 09 and 13 was apartments because all these houses were getting foreclosed, unfortunately, and people had to go live in apartments and it was kind of obvious. So investors were flocking to buy apartments in anticipation of the demand. So back in 13, it was the last deal I did was in Texas that I was like kind of a regular market rate deal. And even that was a little bit better than market rate. As of 14, I was mostly on the sidelines. Now in 2015, I don't know, are you familiar with Midland, Texas? Yep. Okay, great. That's going to make this discussion easier. So for those of you who have never heard of it, Midland, Texas is kind of the epicenter of oil, okay? It's the closest major city to the Permian Basin and a lot of what goes on. I think it's south of there. I actually have a few oil investments myself in that area. And I was approached by a sponsor who I'd invest with probably over 10 times in multifamily. Well, now it's 10 to 15 times, but he owned over a billion of apartments. I've done a few deals with him. He was able to purchase a probably 90, 95% occupied 300 unit plus apartment building in Midland when oil was under $30. We were able to get it, it kind of a, at what I call distressed pricing, even though the actual asset wasn't distressed because rents were coming down significantly. 
and a very large hedge fund had to get rid of this one property because it didn't match. It was non-institutional. It didn't match the rest of their properties in their portfolio. So he came to me and said, look, we're about to buy this for 2009 pricing per unit. And you know, to me, that's a no brainer. You're like, okay, it's 2015 oil prices are probably down temporarily. We're about to get to 2009 prices. And by the way, it's like 90, 95% occupied in cash flowing. So we actually closed on, I think like $18 million acquisition. And I think it was sold in 2018 or 19. We closed at like 34 million. But the thing is, is that back then to me, if you're looking at a 2009 price, that's a no brainer, right? And it's just unusual. So I did that one. There was another one, same operator, just an easy example. He had purchased a building in 2009 and he had a right in 2000, five years later with the equity group to buy them out at a predetermined price, which is very odd, but that's what he had negotiated. So imagine that he had, had the ability to buy out this building, the Class B building in Texas for $9 million that appraised for $17.5 million at that time, okay? But the key was that he wasn't allowed to flip it for a year. So what he did was he approached his investor and said, I'm going to put my money in second position at, you know, behind yours. We're going to buy this with preferred equity for one year, and then I'm going to sell it. So he basically put us in an effective 50% LTV based on the appraisal because he was buying it out at 9 million. And then he put, I think it was like 10% behind us. And so we're like 8 million or whatever. I'm getting the numbers wrong, but we were about 50% LTV, 14% interest, one year hold. No brainer right? I thought apartments were too expensive. This was a unique situation. You just have to do it at 50% LTV, 14% interest, right? Yeah. So those are just two quick examples. I've done a, a bunch of others as well, just apartments specifically. I probably invested in, since 2013, I probably invested in five to 10 apartments, honestly. But each one had a very unique situation. It was like, okay, it's a no brainer. I have to do it. So going back to today now, in June of 2020, unless something is that much of a no brainer, I'm waiting on the sidelines to wait for prices to adjust. When do you think prices are going to adjust? Well, so I'm waiting for three steps to occur. And if, if I had to guess, you know, if you look at historical downturns, normally it takes about one to two years for prices to bottom out. So that's what I'm expecting because I'm just a, I'm a big fan of taking past data and kind of extrapolating into the future. Sure. So that's what I'm expecting as a very quick answer. And what I'm waiting for, which is a problem now because with the government stimulus, it's going to be delayed, is I'm waiting for what I call vacancy discovery, which is how much is vacancy going to go up in a specific asset class based on this recession? Okay. And that's actually not showing itself yet, especially in multifamily, because with the current stimulus and the $600 check that's ending in the end of July, people are sitting at home, not going back to their jobs and making more money and they're paying their rent. Okay. Now that $600 check is supposed to be going away. We're going to have to find out, but there's still unemployment and everything. And there may be some different type of stimulus after that. The point is that until all the artificial stimulus is gone, which I don't think is going to happen until after the election, I don't think we're really going to have proper vacancy discovery till next year. I could be wrong, but if you're asking me my opinion right now, that's my best guess, right? So we need vacancy discovery first, which then causes more supply, which then causes market rents to go down at the same demand, right? So rents will probably go down. And then I'm waiting for, that's going to decrease NOI, right? Effectively, sure. when you combine the two. And then I'm waiting for the cap rate adjustment. In other words, what multiple are people willing to pay based on having a recession, which typically multiple goes down and the cap rate goes up in a recession because people are scared. There's less money that's willing to invest, et cetera. But I got to wait for all three of these things to happen to even know what's going on in the market. And the biggest problem is that it takes months for a transaction to close. And I don't see much going on right now until after the elections, which by the way, in a normal election year would have been a slow second half. People waiting to see who's going to get elected, what policy changes there may be and how that's going to affect real estate, right? 
So I'm going to begin to look at what's happening in like January. And then, you know, by like mid-year, maybe mid-2021, we may have some price discovery a little bit. There's already been some adjustments. I've seen some deals that are getting done, but you know, there may be some discovery then. But if you really want the bottom, you know, the bottom is being delayed by the stimulus to all these dominoes to fall. So it might be, you know, a year or two from January before we start to get to a bottom. If you're just taking historical and how the numbers typically work. Got it. So is that analysis specific to apartment buildings or would you carry that over to mobile home parks and self-storage facilities? Yeah, same thing for mobile home parks and same things for self-storage and specifically mobile home parks because mobile home parks are being lower income people. The stimulus is probably even more outweighed to them. And if you were in a class C or even below apartment, maybe it'd be more similar. But, but again, until all the stimulus is gone, we're not going to see the reality of what's going on, right? So, so I'm waiting on that. But I, I love mobile home parks and apartments uh, and self-storage um, and senior living. Those are my four favorite asset classes for predictability of income for the next 10 years. But I don't know that I'm comfortable going in any of them right this minute. Tell us a little more about senior living because I don't think we've ever had anybody talk about that on, on the show. What do those senior living deals typically look like? Yeah. So, you know, I've never invested in a development deal in 18 years because I'm pretty low risk. And so... The challenge with senior living is that most of the deals that are getting done in the past years and probably going forward are going to be development because the aging population, which is just so obvious, it's math, is going to have so much more demand going into the next mm-hmm. 10, 15 years, right? And so there's a ton of development, which is not a fit for me, which makes finding stabilized opportunities very hard because most people, most of the syndicators are focused on development to maximize their profit. Um, it's very hard to find stabilized opportunities. Um, that being said, Senior living is complicated because the, the um, classification of senior living spans a ton of verticals. I'm just going to give you a few of them. There's age-restricted apartments, 55 and over. Okay? Mm-hmm. There's assisted living facilities. There's memory care. There's skilled nursing. There's other types too. And so each one of these buckets has a different risk-reward profile and requires a different level of work, right? So you can imagine... At 55-plus age-restricted apartment community has a certain profile, and then a memory care community where someone's got Alzheimer's or no dementia and that type of thing, that's a whole different level of care sure. and a whole different level of risk and a whole different level of resources that go behind it, right? So the challenge with senior living is that as you go up the spectrum, it becomes more and more of a business that's more and more challenging to run. And med- so you're running a medical facility. You're not running a, a piece yes. of real estate. You get to the point where you are running pretty much a medical facility with different licensing, et cetera. Now, as you run up the spectrum, the returns go up because it becomes more and more challenging to run, right? So the risk reward. So every investor would have to analyze it and see where they're most comfortable fitting into, what are they targeting within that section of senior living? So senior living from a predictability standpoint is obviously a little easier as you, you go into the lower part of that spectrum where like age-restricted communities, if you've got the right facilities, they're very hard to find, but if you've got the right facilities, I'm gathering the turnover is probably lower than a normal apartment, right? Because people are older and if they like it, they're going to stay and they've got their friends. So that could be interesting for someone looking for predictability, but just very hard to find and probably will have a higher multiple than a memory care facility that's harder to run, right? So the cash flow will be a little lower. It's a complicated asset class. The reason why I really like it is because if I look for predictability, the predictability of demand from clients for the next 10 years is going to be very, very high once we get past COVID and have some type of either therapeutic or vaccine that can help that situation. Right now it's a disaster because yeah. you know people are afraid to put their parents into a facility because the next day COVID could start in there and spread everywhere, right? So they're having a ton of carnage 
in a senior living space right now, unfortunately. But I, I personally believe that's temporary and that probably in the next year, once there's a, a really good therapeutic or a vaccine, that's probably going to end up stabilizing again. And then you've got that predictability of demand for a long time. Awesome. So how do you choose mobile home parks or self-storage facilities? Sure. Let's do mobile home parks first. So everyone, there's a thousand ways to invest. I'm just going to give you the way that I invest. <laughs> you know, it doesn't match up necessarily with everybody else, but I'm looking for predictable cash flow. Now, the interesting thing about mobile home parks is they typically have a lower expense ratio than a lot of the other asset classes, which means for someone like me, you could buy something at 60 to 70% occupied and get a certain level of cash flow that may require an apartment to be at 80 to 90% occupied. So that's a really nice feature if you're looking for heavy cash flow. Another thing about mobile home parks, which is not true at this very second, but historically, is that the cap rates have been higher, so the cash flow has been higher. And that's been very appealing to someone like me. And finally, probably one of my favorite parts about it is that the turnover rate is probably the lowest turnover rate of any major asset class period. Very, very low. so expensive to move it. Yes, I believe it's about 9% per year on average, if I have that right. So, you know, just to give you, you know, compared to apartments, for example, right, which can vary depending on the class, but is nowhere near 9%, right? So way that I go about looking for mobile home parks is very similar to a lot of traditional investors who are looking for cash flow. You've got to take a look at how many homes are actually called park-owned homes versus owner-occupied homes or owner-owned homes. Okay. I try to limit the maximum amount of owner of park-owned homes to about 25%, preferably maybe 30 maximum, preferably much lower. 10% or lower would be fantastic, you know, harder to find. Why that's important is because you have pride of ownership when most people own their own homes. There's a different clientele, it's a different mentality. And if you have a 100% park-owned homes, meaning it's all rentals, right? You're going to have a different type of clientele there and you can have a different level of challenges, both collecting rents, crawls within the parks, et cetera. It's just a different and type maintenance, maintenance, all of the above. Right? So I look for a, a low level of park owned homes. Everyone looks for kind of, if possible, city water and sewer hookups versus, you know, owned by the park for potential maintenance or other issues. And obviously an experienced operator, it's been mobile home parks. I've done a ton of investing in them since 2010 the cap rates have just come down more than any other asset class. It's just crazy. So my hope is that once we have this reset that we're in the middle of starting right now for this new cycle, that the cap rates will increase significantly compared to most other asset classes because they compress so much going into this downturn that I think they have further up to go. And I'm very much looking forward to those cap rates coming back to a better place so that, you know, I can get that cash flow because it's such a great cash flow type of opportunity at a high occupancy level. So when you talk about cash flow, you say, you say you're, you're heavy on cash flow, which I would assume translates to you when you invest into apartment complexes, you're probably looking closer to the CBs than the, the high Bs, high A's. Well, so that's actually why I, I invest in B. Okay. Cause I look okay. for more predictability because you know, it's arguable, but a C or a D is going to have a harder time collecting the same mm -hmm. level of rents. And so the predictability of having those rents come in, even if it's fully occupied, is not as easy. And I try to avoid A because A tends to be more volatile, both in pricing and also tends to be institutional. So it's structured a different way in terms of as an investor. And it tends to be more volatile in rents during a downturn, right? So people may have to step down and those rents are significantly higher so they can come down much more quickly so they can be more volatile during a downturn. So I kind of target B for myself. Now, that's one of the reasons why I stopped investing for the most part in apartments as of 2013 because I wasn't achieving the level of cash flow that I was looking for or the cap rate that I target essentially. 
So that's what kept me on the sidelines. So I know every deal is different and you seem to be savvier than, than most passive investors, but is there a specific criteria that you just kind of blanket across? I want to see either this much cash on cash, this internal rate of return, or, you know, this equity multiple. Is there, is there like yes. a baseline that you go out and kind of apply to every type of different investment? I'll never go lower than this rate of return. Each asset class is a little different as far as where I draw the line. Now, I, the cap rate is probably the most important thing to me because all that's something that's 80 to 100% occupied, stabilized, may or may not have any value at upside. And so knowing that we have to buy it right for the padding, I've got to be very careful on the multiple that we're paying. And that's what I really focus on. So in apartments, for example, in class B, I probably drew the line once cap rates were below seven. I was like, I'm out. And, and even frankly, I'm more comfortable at seven and a half or higher. Okay. Which is going to sound ridiculous to some people who have never even seen those cap rates in the last few years. <laughs> but that's, I mean, the last deal I did in 2013 that I would call market, and it was still better than market. I invested in a 267 unit apartment building in Mesquite, which is Dallas, Texas. We paid about a, a 9.1 cap. It was actually an 8.8 .8 cap and it got negotiated because interest rates spiked on closing to 9.1. There was a partner dispute, so we probably got, it was probably should have been about an eight cap or seven and 7.8 cap. We got a better, but even then you could have bought that at an eight cap market rate, right? And then, you know, interest rates weren't where they are now, but when you started layering in interest rates back then, you were at nine, 10% year one, right? If managed well as net to investors, right? So my cash flow targets for the past cycle have been 9% cash flow net to investors year one projected. 11% average annualized cash flow projected net to investors. That was achievable across all these different asset classes, except one by one, they dropped off all the way up to 2015, 16. Not for apartments specifically, right? Those dropped off in 13 roughly for that mm -hmm. type of target. But keeping to my cash flow and cap rate targets is what kept me on the sidelines, which is what, in my opinion, keeps me out of trouble, and which is why I reverted to pushing people to sell, right? Now, People may be listening to this and saying, oh, you didn't know COVID was going to happen, right? And I 100% agree with them. Nobody <laughs> knew COVID was going to happen. But COVID to me is actually not COVID. It's a recession. A recession was going to happen. And the yield curve was showing us a recession was probably going to happen sometime by mid-2021. So I was pushing all that time because a recession happens because it's cyclical, like the economy is cyclical. So this isn't about, oh, I predicted COVID perfectly and I sold in 2017, <laughs> 18, 19. No, this was like about just there's a recession coming up. When are the probabilities and what makes sense to lock in when? Even that mobile home park that I invested in 2017, we sold in 2019. I normally invest in a 10-year deal, but it got so compressed with the cap rates and we got such a good, unique deal, we went and sold it because the downturn was coming up. So I've heard you make a couple comments about pushing the operators to sell, and I'd like to hear more about that. Because typically, you know, when you look at the structure of a syndication, the passive investors aren't making the operating decisions. And I'm just wondering, are you like, like one of the primary sole investors so that you have kind of more, more pressing power in those type of situations? And is that, is that a strategic approach? Because I have heard some, some passive investors say, I want to be the only investor in the deal. And I wonder if it's for a situation like this to arise. Whereas if you were one of 150 investors in a deal and you were pushing to sell, nobody would probably listen to you. So can yeah. you talk a little more about that? Sure. Yeah. And before I do that, I want to clarify one thing just on the cash flow piece we just talked about. So very important. People are probably thinking, oh, 11% average annualized cash on cash on a class B asset in a decent market. You're crazy, right? I want to point out that I'm going to be taking a step back. Now the cycle's done. 
seeing where things bottom out and then creating a new cash flow targets for myself for the next cycle. And then I'll have those targets to go through and eventually each asset class will drop off. That's how I work to keep myself out of trouble. So I want to be clear. I'm not expecting the same cash flow necessarily the next cycle. I don't know. We'll see where cap rates go. I don't think so because interest rates are lower than they used to be, but I'm going to have to adjust things probably. I want to be clear on that. So just FYI. Yeah. So going to your question. So there's a couple things to consider for me. You know, I don't want to get into the details, but I have an investor group. And so sometimes my group might be investing in an entire deal. And then, you know, we're a whole bunch of investors, but I can, I have a very strong relationship with the operator. And then in the end of the day, it's always the operator's choice. They have full control, but I can definitely, you know, push and prod and send articles and show statistics and do what I can. Now, when I'm an individual investor, and by the way, that, that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. Okay. They have control individual investors, what I'll do is I try to stay in good touch with the operator anyway, because for me, it's about building relationships, even if I'm one of 100. And I will lobby as much as I can without being a complete pest and talk about downturns. You know, and it becomes down to a question of philosophy. Okay, there's some syndicators, in my opinion, who are just hell bent on a very long term hold, and don't mind waiting out price going down and back up. But they're very big on paying the mortgage down, you know, taking advantage of the tax benefits or the deferrals from depreciation. And, you know, real estate typically goes up slowly over time, right? And, that, and so no matter what you tell them, they're not going to look to sell. There are some who want to optimize like, oh, we're at, you know, retail strip center. We're at 87% occupied. If we get to 95, then we'll sell it, right? But yeah, but that 95 may not come before the next downturn. And there's not much I can do about it because that's the mindset that they're in. There are others who are much more open to hearing, oh, you know, real estate cyclical, tell me why you think that we should sell in the next year, right? And start showing them some data. And if you pound away at it enough as a past investor, you can start to help influence their decision. Now, again, that's their decision and I'm just one voice, right? And by the way, other investors may not agree. I was in um, four different self-storage opportunities with one operator and we sold three of them between 2017, 18, 19, okay? And I remember one investor I knew was like, I don't want to sell this. What am I going to invest in to get the same cash flow? Because we bought the thing at like an eight and a half cap in 2015 and now we're selling it at like a five and a half cap, okay? Real numbers. And I was like, no, no, we got to lock in the gains. Like there's going to be a downturn. We're going to buy that thing back at like a seven or seven and a half cap at some point. But he's like, yeah, but for those years, I don't have cash flow, right? He's not wrong. So everyone's going to have their own opinion and the operator is going to have their own opinion too, right? So I'm just one opinion who's just lobbying and trying to influence. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It really depends on the operator. Got it. What kind of advice would you, would you have for somebody who's looking to get started in, in passive investing, you know, an engineer, a doctor, somebody who, who's tired of the sick and tired of the stock market, interested in getting in real estate, doesn't have a lot of time or interest in doing all the homework that we've done. Where, where would you tell them to start? Yeah. So uh, first thing I'll say is that don't ever invest in unless you're hundred percent comfortable. And that could mean something different for different people, but I've gotten diversified over 18 years and it takes a long time to learn all these asset classes and it's totally doable, but it takes time. So my suggestion is start with an asset class that you understand best first and learn the first one because a lot of stuff is translatable, like expense ratios and certain things, cap rates and all that. You can translate into different asset classes, right? You have to make tweaks to them, but they're translatable. So you don't have to relearn each one from scratch. Now, I'm not just saying this because I'm on a multifamily podcast, but most people actually choose multifamily to start because it's the most relatable. It's the most relatable because they probably lived in an apartment building before and they understand how it works. And it's also not as complicated as a senior living facility for them to understand, for example, right? So it's an asset class that's very common to start in. And so if somebody was trying to learn and start, my suggestion is if you're an accredited investor, 
log on to a bunch of the crowdfunding, big crowdfunding sites, download 10, 20 opportunities in your pajamas, put them all on the table, compare them, and see what's the same and what's different between all these. What's a fair investor structure? What looks like an unfair investor structure on the good end and the bad end of things, right? Anyway, what I'm trying to say is just compare everything and make sure you understand what's sticking out and what isn't sticking out. Even like the price that someone's paying per unit. You could have two buildings in Dallas, they're totally different pricing, why is that? Do you agree with the business plan of all of them? They're all gonna have different business plans to an extent, right? How much is being spent per unit? Does that make sense across all these things you're gonna learn, even the expense ratios, you're gonna learn by doing what I call you know, opportunity comparison or opportunity exposure. And for me, it was so hard to get the opportunity exposure because I had to go network in person to find an opportunity to even read, right? That's just crazy amount of work. You can now do this in two hours, you can download 20 opportunities on crowdfunding sites. Now, just note that for some of those people you're talking about, because they want to be passive, if they don't have much interest in taking a lot of time to network to find opportunities, which is really the hardest part of my day, finding opportunities, then they can learn and then maybe even move forward investing on crowdfunding sites where there's an intermediary and the returns are lower, but it's easy because there's a huge menu of opportunities to choose, right? Another thing somebody could do is listen to podcasts like this and listen to some of the operators who are on here and then start to learn about those operators and maybe choose from those. So again, you don't have to go network to find a deal. You can hear about the different operators on the different podcasts as just an example. Um, you can go into bigger pockets and do a lot of learning as well and a lot of networking as well. There's a lot of different resources for someone who's new right now. It's a lot easier than when I started. But the first thing I'd recommend is get educated, pick one asset class, learn it well, dip your toe into that asset class, and then consider expanding into other asset classes. But right now, just know it's a very dangerous time to invest. In June of 2020, it's a very dangerous time. Real estate adjusts very slowly. The stock market adjusts very quickly. It should take at least a year or two for the prices to bottom out. And if you decide to move forward into a deal today, just understand what you're getting into and why that makes sense right now. We're going to censor that part out. Now. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want to add one more positive note, though, which is sure. you know, arguably it's a hard, one of the hardest times to invest right now. It's going to be one of the best times to invest in a year or two. And when that per new person is like getting educated today, it's probably the best time to get educated right now because you're yeah. about to line yourself up to go in at the right timing. So that's a really good thing for someone listening to this right now. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So real quick, I just want to transition over to our radio round. We just asked you a few questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. First one is what's your favorite book? I'm going to answer this two books, uh, same author. If you're brand new to this type of investing and being passive, I'd strongly recommend reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki, but then also read Cashflow Quadrant by Robert Kiyosaki and read them in that order, in my opinion, but don't just read one of them, read both of them and read them in that order. Right? We're supporters of that. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I've got that as well. So, Next one is what's your favorite quote? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to give you one. It's the one that comes to mind right away and it actually is very applicable right now. So what's really interesting about today, you know, June of 2020 is that if a sponsor sends an opportunity out today, just based on how it works in other downturns and people are scared, stock market's been crazy, maybe they're going to get one quarter to one half of the investment amount they would have gotten from their investors six months ago when things were normal, right? People are really scared and don't want to invest right now. But you want to be greedy when other people are fearful and be fearful when other people are greedy. And now is becoming the time to be greedy when other people are fearful and that's when you make a lot of money, okay? So that's a Warren Buffett quote. It may not be exact, but it's rough and really very applicable to today. What's so funny is that Warren Buffett's sitting on the sidelines at the moment still because the stock market's at crazy high valuations based on a bunch of different metrics 
and he's just waiting for one more leg down, which is typically what happens in a downturn before he jumps in. He's going to be doing the exact same thing. He's been sitting on the sidelines for years for the most part, waiting to deploy billions of dollars, waiting for this moment. And so it might be scary right now, but in the next 24 months, probably you're going to, if you put a lot of work into it, you're going to find a lot of really good opportunities. And this is the great time to invest, but just be very careful at this very moment. Awesome. Absolutely. And what's your favorite thing to do when you're not working? I'm with my kids typically when I'm not working. I've got a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old that are growing up really quickly, so I've been trying to put a ton of focus on them, and I work from home, so I'm very lucky for that. I'm a car guy as well, so I love driving. I'm into like newer cars, and I love driving. LA is a very bad place to love driving, but <laughs> I do love driving. And I play a few sports and stuff too. Awesome. So where can our listeners find out more about you? Yeah, sure. But, and don't hesitate to reach out to me if you're brand new and just curious to learn more about, you know, if I can help you in any way. If you're an experienced investor and want to network, if you're an operator and you want to you know, network, you have opportunities. If you're another investor group and you want to network with me as an investor group, whatever is, you know, I'm happy to help any way that I can. Easiest way to reach me is my email, which is uh, jroll, J-R-O-L-L, at rollinvestments, R-O-L-L, investments, with an S, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments, dot com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. And we definitely look forward to hearing more from you soon. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I hope that this episode is helpful for your listeners. Absolutely. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at Crestworth Capital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.